Well, we've come to the end of our conference. This has been a tremendous three days that we have spent together worshiping the Lord and sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, making new friends, fellowshipping, being encouraged, and being reminded that no matter where it is that we worship the Lord, that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ around the states and overseas that believe what we believe and really stand shoulder to shoulder with us. And so that is, I think, one of the great values of coming to the G3 conference is to, is to really stand strong with other fellow believers who believe what you believe. I want to thank Josh Bice and Praise Mill Church for hosting this conference and the extraordinary job that they do in putting this together. As you can imagine, this is an extraordinary undertaking. And it was several years ago, uh, before G3 was even started, I received an email, and it was from a guy named Josh Bice. And he had the idea to have a conference. He was calling it G3, and it was like Grace, God, Gospel. And as I read this letter, I was very taken by his sincerity and his convictions. And so I emailed him back and said, yes, count me in. I would love to come preach at this conference. And it took even a couple of years before we had the, the first one, and we started 25 miles west of here in Douglasville at Praise Mill Baptist Church. And the Praise Mill family was there, and I don't know how many were there that first G3 conference, but let's just say another couple hundred, and we easily fit in the worship center, and it was a privilege and a joy to preach the Word of God. But to track and trace this now from year to year to year, and it's been my privilege uh, to have preached at every G3 conference, to see this grow and to, into becoming really, it, it's a movement uh, of what God is doing. Um, has been an extraordinary, an extraordinary joy for me. So, Josh, thank you very much for being used by God to uh, start this conference and to watch it grow before our very eyes into what it has become. And so, we come now to the end of G3 2021. And we've been so focused upon Christ, rightly so, and there's hardly anything that it seems that could be added to what has already been said. And I'm so encouraged that you're here. You're an example of the perseverance of the saints, really, to have endured this much preaching. But uh, we come to the last session, and my focus is upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and my text for this final session will be verses 19 to 23, and as always, I want to begin by reading the passage, setting it before you. This will be the focus of our exposition in this final session, and the reason we are so committed to preaching through passages of Scripture is because God put the power in the Word. Um, he, he didn't put it in our illustrations. He didn't put it in our, even our outlines or the way that we pull this together. God put the power in the Word. And it is expository preaching. It is biblical preaching that really lets the lion out of the cage, that lets the power, unleashes the power of the Word of God. I agree with Spurgeon that one ounce of what God has to say is worth more than 50,000 tons of what any man has to say. And Spurgeon said, if we want more revivals, then we must revive our passion for the Word. And if we want to see more people saved, then we must preach more of the Word. And so our focus in this session is on John chapter 20, and I want to begin reading in verse 19. We'll just be looking at these five verses. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, 
for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. In these verses, we see the first appearance of Jesus to the collective disciples, minus Thomas and Judas, at the end of a very long day, the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has already made five appearances to Mary and to others, to Peter, and this is now the first time for there to be a a composite appearance of Christ, probably in the upper room in Jerusalem, to His disciples. It would be impossible for us to overestimate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we are considering in this last message is not incidental to the Christian faith, it it is fundamental. It, It is not peripheral, it is primary. This is not of secondary importance, but in a sense, the whole of Christianity rests upon the reality and the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is impossible to be a Christian and to deny the resurrection. It's impossible to be a Christian and and even to explain away the resurrection as a mere allegory or, or myth. Jesus had to be raised from the dead. And I think it's a fair question for us to ask, why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? Well, number one, He had to be raised from the dead as proof of our justification. It was the seal of our justification that the Father has accepted the atonement of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The crucifixion without the resurrection would have been a failed mission at Calvary. Romans 4 and verse 25 reads, God, Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions, now listen to this, and was raised because of our justification. What that means is, is that when Jesus died upon the cross, the Father was so pleased and so satisfied with, with His substitutionary sin-bearing death that the Father raised Him from the dead as authentication that the atonement was a perfect sacrifice for sins. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, it would have indicated that the Father has not accepted the cross of Christ on our behalf. And so the resurrection is of supreme importance because it is the validation of the success of the saving ministry of Jesus Christ for sinners. The second reason why it is so important is because the resurrection was the, is the power for our sanctification. We live the Christian life in the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. The, the Christian life is not hard. It is impossible to be lived in our own strength. We can only live the Christian life in the supernatural power that God gives to us as we battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. And the resurrection of Christ from the dead becomes the very same power that raises us to walk in newness of life. Romans 6 and verse 4 states, 
as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You and I, this very moment, are experiencing the resurrection power of Christ with every step that we take in our Christian life. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You and I could not take one step forward in the Christian life in our own strength. Yet Paul writes in Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And the strength that pulsates through our soul is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. There is no explanation for your Christian life apart from the power of the resurrection to raise you above the muck and the mire of this world. But further, the resurrection is absolutely essential. The resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential because it, is, it gives us the certainty of our glorification. You and I, this very minute, know that we are as certain for heaven as though we have already been there 10,000 years because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus said in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. It is the resurrection of Christ that guarantees that at the end of this age, my body will be raised from the dead, and it will be a glorious resurrection body in which I will live forever and ever. I will have a resurrection body that will never grow tired and never grow weary throughout all of the ages to come in heaven. I will have glorified eyes, resurrected eyes with which to behold the beauty of Christ in heaven. I will have a glorified tongue and resurrected tongue with which to sing His praises forever and ever. I will have a, a resurrected uh, uh, knees with which I will bow before the throne of grace, resurrected hands with which I will cast my crowns before His throne. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that guarantees that I will live forever, that I will have a resurrection body in which I will live, and I will be endued with supernatural power to worship and serve God throughout all of the ages to come. Philippians 3 verse 20 and 21 says, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of power. And this is why the resurrection is so important to us. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then there, my body would lay in the grave at the end of the age and never be raised. But there's one more reason why the resurrection is so important. And I'm just building a front porch before we move into our text. The resurrection is so important because it is the path of Christ's exaltation and enthronement at the right hand of God the Father. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, He would not be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He would not have all authority in heaven and earth entrusted to Him. He would be a dead Savior, and a dead Savior is no one's Savior. But He was raised from the dead, and He has been now seated far above all earthly powers and all angelic powers. Ephesians 1 and verse 20 says, God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He, God, put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. That's why the resurrection is so fundamental to Christianity 
because it is the resurrection that began this glorious ascent back to heaven where he would be enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. So this passage before us in John 20 records the very first time on the resurrection day that Jesus appeared to the ten disciples in an upper room. So let's walk through this passage as we bring our conference to consummation. And I want you to note first in verse 19, the panic. Because after the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were terrified that the authorities would be coming after them next. And so we read in verse 19, and so when it was evening on that day, it was at the end of the day, it was evening, it was after sunset. That day was the day of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. John records it's the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. He was raised from the dead on Sunday. And it was so significant that the early church began to gather on Sunday because it was resurrection day for them. It was always to commemorate and to remember the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And down through these centuries, it has remained the day that we gather together as the people of God to worship God as we remember that this was the day. This was the resurrection day. And John continues to record, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, that they were, they were scared spitless, and they had every reason to, to believe this, because now with Jesus out of the way, they will be easy prey for the religious leaders of, of Israel as well as for the governing authorities of, of Rome. And so they are huddled up like like, like little mice behind a, behind a closed door, trembling and, and fearing in, in total, complete panic. The doors were shut. They were gripped with fear. Jesus has been crucified. Surely they will be next. And we can hardly put ourselves into their place and to identify with this fear that was striking them. Now, just remember, it had just been hours earlier, probably in this very same upper room, that Jesus gave them the upper room discourse within 24 hours. And it's still ringing in their ears. And Jesus had said to them in John 15, 19, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They haven't forgotten that overnight. That is still embedded in their mind. And then Jesus went on to say in John 16, verse 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's why they're hiding behind closed doors after the crucifixion of Jesus from the uh, crucifixion upon the cross. And then added to that, in the same chapter, John 16, verse 20, Jesus said, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve. And the reason for that is their master will be taken from them. This is the panic that they were feeling. It was real. But then an even greater panic occurred. We read in the middle of verse 19 something that escalated their, their, their panic to the highest level. We read, Jesus came and stood in their midst. The resurrection Christ suddenly just appears. There's no knock at the door. There, there's no opening the door. Suddenly, He is in their midst as though He is dropped out of space. How, how did He even get into the room? Well, Jesus is in a resurrected body. 
and he has unlimited capacity of travel. And he can just walk through a wall as if the wall is not even there. And earlier in Luke, uh, yes, Luke 28, Jesus just appeared on the road to Emmaus to those two disciples. And that is some indication of what our body will be like in heaven one day with unlimited ability of travel throughout the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus now just suddenly appears in their midst, and they are now scared spitless even more so. When we read Luke's account in Luke 24 and verse 37, it says, they were startled, which the Greek word means terrified, filled with dread, and were frightened. And it comes from a Greek word for phobia, phobos. It's like, and with an intensive prefix before it, they were super terrified with a heart-gripping phobia when they saw Jesus. And it says they thought they were seeing a spirit. In other words, they thought they were seeing a ghost. They could not believe that this is the real Christ. John stood there at the foot of the cross. John saw him crucified. John saw his body taken down. He has told the others, but here is this Jesus. It's almost like a hologram is in in front of them. And Luke continues to record, and Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And the word troubled means greatly disturbed. The appearance of Jesus has created an even greater panic within them than their dread of the Roman soldiers. And by the way, just a footnote, when Jesus was raised from the dead and the stone was rolled away, that was not to let Jesus out. He could have just walked through the stone. That was to let the world in. That was to let the disciples in to see that there are the linen wrappings there, but there is no Savior because He has been raised from the dead. So that's where this account begins in verse 19 with the panic. I want you to note second, the peace, because Jesus at the end of verse 19 now gives them exactly what they need. Jesus is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and He cares for His sheep, and He knows exactly what they need and when they need it. And we read, and Jesus said to them, peace be with you. We've already articulated why they so desperately needed peace, because they believe the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders will be after them next. They're still in the very same town, the very same city in which Jesus was just crucified just hours earlier, just days earlier. And so Jesus says to them, peace be with you. How how gracious of Jesus to meet them at their point of need. Jesus does not give them a lecture about their lack of faith. Jesus comes all the way to where they are. He understands their frailty, and He says to them, peace be with you. This peace is just like the peace that Jesus gives to you and me. It is not the subtraction of trials and problems that bring us peace. It is the supernatural tranquility that only God can give to a troubled heart in the midst of our adversities. This is the reality of the peace that Jesus gives. In John 14, verse 27, in that same upper room discourse, but days before, He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The disciples are learning a very important lesson here, and it's a lesson that you and I must know, that Jesus has never promised us an easy life. He has never promised us a trouble-free life. 
He has never promised us a walk without challenges and difficulties. In fact, he will say to the disciples in John 16, verse 33, in this world you shall have tribulation. But what he has promised to these disciples and what he has promised to you and me is that he has promised to give a supernatural serenity and calmness of heart in the midst of the storms of life. And all the thousands of us gathered here today, there are no doubt untold difficulties awaiting you back at home. They may be family challenges, they may be work difficulties, they may be health issues or financial issues. Whatever that is, Jesus says to you today, just as he did 2,000 years ago, peace be with you, and he gives a peace that surpasses all comprehension. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this later when he himself was imprisoned in Rome for two solid years, chained to Roman soldiers. And the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says to them what he himself was experiencing and what you and I need. Let not your heart be troubled, or excuse me, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I need this peace. You need this peace. And there is only one place to find this peace. And this peace is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our relationship with Him. It is not found in our circumstances. It is found in heavenly places in Christ, and it is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace. This is what Jesus offers to them, and He offers it to you and me. But as we continue to look, I want you to note third, the proof, because Jesus now gives proof to them that He is not a ghost, that He is not, they're, they're not hallucinating. In verse 20 we read, and when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side, the very hands that had been pierced with the nails that came from the Roman soldiers, the very side where the spear was thrust up into his chest cavity, and the water came gushing out. Jesus showed them these visible marks of his crucifixion to prove to them that he is, they were not looking at a ghost, but they are looking at actually the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. He has actually died. He has actually buried he has been actually raised from the dead. This is historical fact. Christianity is a, is a religion that is based in time and space and, and history. Jesus came to this earth. Jesus lived on this earth. Jesus died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. The parallel account in Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 39, Jesus said to them, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. He showed them his hands and his feet. He said to them, have you anything to eat? He takes it even a step further. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. He took it right out of their hand. He put it into his mouth. He chewed it. He swallowed it. He digested it in his real body. He gave them this proof. And we will behold this resurrection body in heaven throughout all the ages to come, and we will marvel that one so glorious would lay down his life for those who are so wretched as you and me. And every time we see those nail-pierced hands in heaven, we will shout hallelujah that he 
died in a real body bearing our sins, and that He has been raised from the dead to confirm our justification. So at the end of verse 20, the disciples then rejoiced when they, they, they saw the Lord. They, they exploded with joy. They, they, they are euphoric. They are overwhelmed with emotion. Their hearts must have leaped out of their chest. They could, could not even contain it. And I think that we see here again, not only is true peace found in Jesus Christ, but all joy is found in Jesus Christ as well. There is not one joy in this world outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The world can have happiness, but happiness depends upon their happenstance. Happiness depends upon your circumstances. If your football team wins, you're happy. If they lose, you're unhappy. But our heart emotion, though we have happiness that comes and goes like the waves of the ocean, we have a joy that is found in the Lord that is transcendent, that rises above the things of this world. It rises above our circumstances and what is taking place. It is anchored in our relationship in this risen Christ. And that is why Paul would write to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Whatever is going on in your life today, because Christ has been raised from the dead, you and I may have joy even in the midst of the difficulties of our circumstances. We may have joy, and in fact, perhaps the greatest testimony that you and I can give is when our world is imploding around us and we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and we are surrounded by difficulty for us to experience a supernatural joy in the presence of others, because it it documents the authenticity of Christ in our lives. That is the peace. I want you to note fourth, the plan. It's in verse 21. I want you to see this plan because it involves you and me as well. We are grafted into this this plan. And so, they're not just to have joy and peace and just sit there in the room. No. They are to get up and move out. And so, we read in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He, He repeats it because some of them are still somewhat so emotionally disturbed over what all has happened with the resurrection. And yes, they see Jesus, and He's alive, but their heart hasn't quite yet settled down. And so Jesus has to say to them a second time, peace be with you, as if they need a a greater measure of peace in the midst of this greater trial. And then Jesus issues what is the Great Commission. This is the Great Commission in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Well, Jesus was sent by the Father into this world of woe on a mission of salvation in order to go to the cross and to give His life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to raise it up again. This commandment I received from my Father, the tip of the spear for the coming of Jesus into this world, beyond giving us an example, beyond showing us how to live, beyond revealing the Father to us, it was to rescue us from the peril and the punishment of our sin. And so Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, well, they understood that, I also send you. And He charges them now with this mission to go into all the world and to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all things that Jesus had commanded them with the confidence that He would be with them to the end of the age. This is what 
Jesus, the resurrected Christ, said to them, it's what he says to us. The Great Commission is still on the books. He gives us peace and he gives us joy, but it is to be used in a dynamic life that is moving out for God and penetrating into the world. In fact, I believe you will have more peace and more joy as you are fulfilling the Great Commission than if you are just sitting still and being a spectator in the Christian life. And if you need joy and if you need peace, I would urge you to get in the game and serve the Lord, and He will be with you in a very unusual and special way to use you to reach others for Christ. And so that is what Jesus charged them with, and it has never been taken off the books. It is still, it is a perennial commandment to this generation that we are to likewise be, we are sent into the world, even as Jesus was sent into the world. And by the way, the mission is not to wait for the world to come to us. The mission is for us to go to the world. We, we, we are sent by the Lord Jesus Himself to penetrate into the world. We are to be in the world, just not of the world. We are to have our boat in the water, just no water in the boat. Fifth, I want you to note the power in verse 22. In order to carry out the plan, you have to have the power. The Great Commission cannot be fulfilled in your own strength, and neither will you have joy or peace in your own strength. There must be the power of the Holy Spirit to rest upon your life and to fill and flood your soul. And that is what we see in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. It was a symbolic act for what will follow. And I might remind us that earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, the ministry and movement of the Holy Spirit was likened unto wind. You remember Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The, the, the wind perfectly represents the Holy Spirit. The wind is invisible. You can't see the wind. Neither can you see the Holy Spirit. But you feel the wind just like you feel the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and you are empowered and propelled by wind. Wind has an extraordinary power, but far greater is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus breathed on them, and notice what He said, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish I had time to more fully develop this, but let me just cut to the bottom line. They already had the Holy Spirit. They would not have been born again if they did not have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit did not begin to operate on the day of Pentecost. No one would have ever been saved in the Old Testament apart from the Holy Spirit, and no one could have ever lived a, a life of faith apart from the Holy Spirit. And they already have the Holy Spirit. In fact, they could have never healed the sick and raised the dead and cl cleansed the leopards and cast out demons in their own strength, for heaven's sake. They already had the Spirit. So what is taking place here is that the Lord Jesus is giving them a greater measure of the Holy Spirit, because there is a greater assignment that has just been given to them that has unlimited scope. They are they will be going into the whole world that will be in resistance to the gospel. And they need power from on high. And in Luke 24, verse 49, in the Great Commission there, Jesus said, you will be clothed with power in the Holy Spirit. They will wear the power of the Holy Spirit like you are wearing clothes right now. It'll be, it will be with you wherever you go. And so often we maybe pull back from the Great Commission in timidity or inadequacy or uncertainty. Let us be reminded that the sovereign, omnipotent Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and was breathed onto the disciples in a greater measure here indwells you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is more than sufficient 
to provide you everything that you need to move forward in the will of God. And as you go back to your home, as you go back to your place of employment and, and house of worship, and the many challenges that will be in front of you, just know that the power of the Holy Spirit that is already in you is more than sufficient to meet every demand that will be upon your life. And in fact, your weakness makes you a prime candidate to be filled with His strength. And so this leads us to the last verse, verse 23. I want you to see the, the pardon. We, we, we just saw the power and the plan. I want you to see the pardon in verse 23 as Jesus now gives them the message, as they go out into the world, as they are being sent by Christ, here is the heart of the message. It's not to improve people's lifestyles. It's not to fix everything that's wrong in the culture or society. That's not the tip of the spear of this, of the mission. Here is the message that we are to take into the highways and into the byways. Here is the message that we are to shout from the housetops. Here is the message that was entrusted to the apostles. It has been recorded in the New Testament. It was already recorded in the Old Testament. It has been handed down to you and me. This is the message for the hour. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What does this mean? Well, let me begin with what it does not mean. This, does not, this is not saying that the apostles can forgive sin. It's not saying you can forgive sin. It's not saying that your pastor can forgive sin. All sin is ultimately against God. And there's only one who can forgive a sin against God, and that is God Himself. In Mark 2, verse, 10, verse 7, they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And in verse 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There's only one who lived a sinless and perfect life. There is only one who was raised up upon a cross bearing the sins of His people. There is only one who shed His blood and made a perfect atonement for sin. There is only one who has reconciled sinners to holy God. There is only one who has satisfied the righteous anger of God towards sinners. There is only one who has bought us out of the slave market of sin and Satan. And that is the one, the only one, who can forgive us our sins, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Now, what does the word forgive mean? Literally, the word means to send away. It carries also the idea of canceling out a debt, to, to remit a debt. And only God can send our sins away. And He sent them away by placing them upon His Son who became our scapegoat at the cross, and He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You can measure the North Pole from the South Pole, but you cannot measure the East from the, from the West. He has taken all of our sins and placed them behind His back where He can see them no more. He has taken our sins and buried them in the depths of, of the ocean of His memory to remember our sins and iniquities no more. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins have been canceled out through the death of Christ upon the cross, and this is what we are to go into the world and to proclaim. We are to offer the greatest need that they have, to have the forgiveness of their sins before a holy God in heaven. 
the word sins is in plural in verse 23, indicating all of our sins, not just some sins, all of our sins, the alpha and the omega of our sins. And the word any that you see in verse 23, indicating any person, any sinner from any past, anywhere with who has committed any sin, where sin is abound, grace does much more abound. So what does this mean also if you forgive the sins of any? That means we declare the message of forgiveness of sins. It says their sins have been forgiven from them. We can't actually see it in our English Bible, but there is a a very important nuance that's going on in the original language, and it is simply this. The sins that we pronounce are forgiven are those that have already been forgiven in heaven. All we're doing is making the announcement and the declaration that if you will repent of your sins and if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Heaven has forgiven your sins if you will do that. We, we, we have no power to forgive sin whatsoever. All we can do is make the announcement, and it's the announcement that has been given from the resurrected Christ, and it has been passed down to you and to me for every parent to give to their child, for every pastor to give to his flock, for every parishioner to give to the world the forgiveness of sins. God says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as snow. God desires to sit down, as it were, across the table and to reason with the one who has been soiled with the guilt of sin, and he will wash away all defilement of of sin if you will believe upon his Son, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. This is what everyone here must do. There's no way we could have this many people gathered in one room, thousands of people and for everyone here to be in the family of God, for everyone here to be born again. There would be untold numbers among us who have not yet come to that place and that point of surrender of their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to conclude this message by giving you one more reason for the resurrection of Christ. I began this message by giving you substantial theological reasons for the resurrection of Christ, but there is one that I have not yet put on the table, and I will conclude with this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the final judgment, that God has raised the judge from the dead, and this judge, Jesus Christ, will hold session in court at the end of the age, and every person will be raised to stand in the supreme court of heaven and earth. And Paul said in Acts 17, verse 31, listen to this, God has fixed a day. It it is etched in His calendar with indelible ink, immutably. God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. This whole world is spinning through outer space, and it is on a collision course with judgment with God. He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This day in court will take place, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will bow that knee in this lifetime and confess Him as Lord and Savior, but others on that last day will bow the knee 
to a Savior they never knew and stand before Him in the judgment, and the books will be opened, and the book of life will be opened, and they will be cast from His presence. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. That final day of judgment is coming, my friend. There is a gathering storm on the horizon today, and that day is fixed by Almighty God. If you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I urge you to flee to Christ this moment. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Throw yourself upon His mercy. And He says, Him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He is the friend of sinners. I know Him. He will receive you. He will forgive you if you will come and humble yourself before His mighty right hand and confess your sin and believe in Him who says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. This is the greatest offer that will ever be extended to you, what you are hearing right now, this very moment. And it is incumbent upon you now to answer this call, to answer this invitation of Christ to your heart. And if you have never believed on Jesus Christ, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. He who, har he who hardens his heart, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. Enter through the narrow gate this very moment, and you will find a Savior who is full of forgiveness and mercy and grace, who will wash away all of your sins, who will move into your life, who will begin to redirect and repurpose your life into His good and acceptable and perfect will. And one day when you die, He will take you home to heaven, and He will take you to the throne of grace, and He will introduce you to the Father. If you have never committed your life to Christ, do not leave this room today without that commitment to Christ. It will be the greatest decision you will ever make. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how we praise you that you have given to us the best. You have given to us your Son, your only Son, your perfect Son, your holy Son. And you've given Him to us to die in our place, to bear our sins to suffer our judgment that was due us, and then for Him to clothe us with His perfect righteousness and to wash away all of our sins. Father, we are overwhelmed that You've had mercy upon us. And Lord, for those here among us today who have never yet bowed the knee to Christ, May they do so this moment before I even close this prayer in their heart of hearts, submitting to and surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.